Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show. I'm Matthew Miranda here, as always, with Jonah Birch. This is episode three. Uh, your quick reminder, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Jacobin Sports and email with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions you might have for the show at jacobinsports at gmail.com. Jonah, what is new with you? Not much, man. How are you doing? I am well. Um, I am excited about a lot of things going on right now in the world of sports, and we're going to touch on a few of them today, but today was the first day in Western New York really all year that we've actually had like snow, so my family is very happy, which means I'm very happy. How is it up there oh, in that's good. the great borough of Brooklyn are you in? I'm in the Bronx, actually. I'm in the Bronx. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, You're by, Rivers, by Riverdale. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very cosmopolitan. You know, I'm yes. from Boston originally, but I've spent most of my life in New York. Technically, I work at a university in North Carolina. Yes. So I, you know, I really, I transcend geographic boundaries. Jonah is the and, show's uh, version of Carmen Sandiego. He's always somewhere different, right. but you'll never know where. That's exactly. That's um, exactly it. So yeah. We're going to talk today about a few things. We're going to touch on the two um, NFL Conference Championship games from the weekend. In a little while, we will be joined by our guest today, Dr. Robert Green, to talk about the life and legacy of the late Hank Aaron. We will have a little NBA talk as well. But let's start with the NFL stuff, and let's start with the first game, which was the NFC Championship at Lambeau Field between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Green Bay Packers. Jonah is legally obligated to pay attention to Tampa Bay because Tom Brady is there. So, Jonah, <laughs> any any thoughts, impressions? What stood out to you from that first game between the Bucks and the Packers? Yeah, first of all, uh, let me say that I, you know, I saw the Dan Graziano, the NFL reporter, tweeted out that Tom Brady has been in eighteen percent of all the Super Bowls ever played. 18% of all the Super Bowls ever played. That's a pretty remarkable number. I know. Uh, and uh, I, it's interesting. It's like a Will Chamberlain statistic. Totally. I mean, well, Will Chamberlain, not that successful. You might remember you know, there, was a, <laughs> there was a certain team in, in his way uh, during the 1960s. But, uh, you know, slipped, it parallels it LeBron. mind at the moment. Yeah, exactly. How could you forget? <laughs> it does parallel LeBron. Uh, it's a good point. He, he, you know, he's so he's played in fourteen conference championships uh, games, and this will be his tenth Super Bowl. And we're just never going to see anything like that again, you know. And and uh, of course, the irony is uh, he didn't have that amazing of a game. I, I mean, he threw three second half interceptions, mm -hmm. uh, and you could definitely make the case that uh, the Packers were. They were right there in position to to take the game away at the end, uh, and a couple of mistakes. Obviously, that first half, the end of the first half touchdown that Brady threw to Scotty Miller with oh. one second left on the clock was an incredible throw and a blown coverage by uh, by Green Bay. But you know, just to, if you look at the totality of Brady's career, you have to be impressed. You know, with his unbelievable longevity. And the incredible success he's had uh, um, over the years, and I, you know, I, I think that Tampa Bay will be a decided underdog in the Super Bowl. But who who could who could bet against him at this point, right? It's tough to, and um, I think especially impressive is that this wasn't a case of a you know, an old kind of past his prime veteran jumping ship to play with a built-in contender. I don't remember even after Brady. The consensus seemed to be after Brady went to Tampa that they would be better, mostly because of him. But I didn't. There wasn't some groundswell of oh, well, the Bucks are going to the Super Bowl. Like this isn't right. somebody riding the coattails of a dominant team just to get there and get a ring. He's as responsible for them being there. I think for what we see on the field and whatever must go on behind the scenes, it's very impressive that a, a player that old at that position. Joined, goes to the other conference, totally new division, right? And has, and as you said, I mean, there definitely are underdogs. I think I heard that they're 
three-point underdogs, even though it's in their own stadium, which means on a neutral site they would be a six-point underdog. But I I was very confident before that game they're going to win, mostly because of him. And I'm not willing to take them over the Chiefs, but it wouldn't be the upset that it would be with other teams with a different quarterback in this matchup. With him there, I think that has to account for something. You know, and I, I think you could see with the Buccaneers, uh, there's a reason that he went there, right? I mean, he and the Patriots were headed for a divorce, and you could see that the Buccaneers had a lot of talent on defense. They had a very fast defense. You, they had some playmakers already in place and uh, and, mm-hmm. and the foundations, uh, you know, in the offensive line. But he clearly has given such an enormous lift to that team, and, and the players who came to play with him, you know, obviously Gronkowski is not the same player that he was before. He had one big catch uh, in this NFC championship, but it's he's not the same player. He's still a very good blocker, a good tight end. Antonio Brown has been, in recent weeks, their best receiver. He was out, but they were ready for someone like Brady to to step in and uh, and you know and take them to to the next level. Uh, but but there was some talent there already. Now the the stupidest take, the thing I hate the most in the aftermath of this game is the endless, pointless, ridiculous. Uh, this shows that the all those great Patriots teams. It was really Brady all along. <laughs> Belichick didn't do anything. He was it. They, Brady was carrying them. Is it Brady or Belichick? What an awful moronic debate that is. Uh, that uh, uh, really, uh, uh, you know, if there's one major sport that you can't pin everything on one player, it's football. And then obviously the quarterback is the most important person on a football team. So I, I'm just saying, you know, they obviously worked very well together for all those years, but I hate that take, man. It drives me crazy. It was Brady and not Belichick. Understood. It's, it's one of the worst binaries in sports where – it's got to be one or the other, and it can't be at all possible that a great coach and a great quarterback dominated for years together. I was struck by two points in the game, and especially that that stood out to me. One was, and I thought of, um, Kenny Smith says that you know you're old in the NBA because when you're young, if you get a turnover and you're coasting down court you know, to dunk it or lay it in, if you look behind you, you'll see everyone is kind of stopped because – you're gone. He says the day he knew that he was an old man in the NBA was when he got a turnover. And as he was dribbling, he turned around and he saw everybody still running after him. And he realized like, (laughs) okay, this is, things have changed. I thought of that on the play when Aaron Rodgers late had, I think it was on third and goal, looked like he had just an open runway to the end zone. And for all the talk about Brady's age, Aaron Rodgers is, I think, 37. And I feel like yep. Aaron Rodgers at 34, maybe even 35, goes for that run. Aaron Rodgers at 37 was not having that run. And I thought for all the speculation about all the other factors that went into the game, that really stood out to me. He had a clear path to at least get a couple yards away, if not into the end zone, and he was not even going to try. Yeah. He missed some open receivers at uh, crucial points toward the end of the game. Uh, They just had an atrocious end to that game. Uh, The decision to go for the field goal made no sense to me. Um, But like you're saying, uh, yeah, I mean, he had open space in front of him. And uh, why he tried to force it into Devontae Adams instead of running it, uh, you know, he just, he missed it, uh, obviously. and now, you know, I feel terrible for – I have so many friends from Wisconsin. They have so little else in their lives besides the Packers. You know, all those <laughs> wonderful people from Wisconsin. And uh, you get the impression that, you know, one way or another, it's quite possible, you know, Aaron Rodgers isn't going to be on this team going forward. They drafted a quarterback in the first round last year. Obviously caused a lot of controversy there, but – uh, we'll see. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, it would be a sad ending if that's what happens. Even Rogers after the game did not sound right. confident or enthused about his return. Yeah, well, they got they have Giannis for a couple of months, so they can, they can hold on to that. <laughs> there you go. That's something. That's true. That's something. Now, uh, let me ask you this. We're, uh, 
if if we switch gears and talk about the AFC Championship game for a second, would you say that people in Buffalo were devastated in the same way by that loss? Because my I get the impression that actually, uh, you know, it was kind of what people expected, and they were into the team. They're excited about the team going forward, but this was not the heartbreaking, crushing blow that the Packers defeat was no the vibe the the vibe among Bills fans right now is very much that this team really did about as well as it could they didn't lose because of poor planning or poor execution they lost because they just ran into a team that's on a different level than they are and you see this in sports all the time the the first year a team is good it's essentially a a free pass and because the Bills haven't been this good in literally 30, 30 years, the reaction has mostly been positive. And I think also when your quarterback is you know, 24 instead of 37, that, that's what goes a long way into it. And there had been a lot of speculation that the offensive coordinator was going to leave to take a head coaching job, but he's staying. So I think there's more of a feeling of this was a great foundation and now we'll make some moves and next year – you know, we'll run it back again. It, there's been much more of a positive vibe than disappointment or anything sad about how it went. I, I think, I think coming in, people, it was already a successful season. Anything beyond that would have been icing on the cake. And really, if you saw the game and you saw once Kansas City got rolling, it looked like a just, yeah. there was a there was a race there was a, a it's become kind of famous now very recently um at university of michigan they have a track star named um, zaya holman and she was in a relay race and when she's the anchor and when the last person handed her the baton she was light years behind everybody else and she just took off and it was two laps and as you're watching it you're realizing like she just looks different than everybody else and she started passing yep. people and passing and she ended up winning that was how that game looked like as soon as kansas city yeah. got it rolling it didn't really matter what buffalo did like one team if there was a league beyond the nfl like the chiefs would be there and the bills probably would not and i think that was the difference between mahomes and tyree Kill and travis kelsey they just have so many explosive players on offense and the bills have a very good offense but this is like you know someone who's very good for their time versus someone who's very good for all time um i mean tyreek hill in the open field looks like an olympic athlete running with amateurs you know with whatever okay that's a i guess olympic athletes are supposed to be amateurs but you know what running with high school students i mean he's just so much faster than everyone else uh, and the combination of him and Kelsey are so over, so dominant. The uh, they open up I've so seen, much of the field. The only times no. I've seen there was a there was a game years ago in Buffalo when Thurman Thomas broke away and looked like he was in for a, a long, easy touchdown, and Deion Sanders ran him down from out of nowhere, and it was just you realized like even among pro athletes, There's this speed guy's on a speed. different level. And when Michael yeah. Vick was early in his career, there were times he had a run in overtime to win a game in Minnesota. I remember that, that. He literally looked like a video game character. Like it just looked like he's on a different plane. And when Hill had that like 70 yard catch and he ran and he cut, like it looked like a joke. It looked like varsity. Like you're saying, it looked like varsity versus JV. The one thing I, I would like to ask you about, because this didn't get talked about, I haven't heard much about it, and it might just be a peeve of mine, but late in that game, there was a point where Buffalo was down 20, 23, which in the NFL now that's three possessions. If you get a touchdown and a two, a touchdown and a two, and then a regular touchdown and an extra point, it's a tie game. So it's a three-possession game. Buffalo scored a touchdown. This drives me nuts. I don't know why. Well, I do know why. It seems stupid. Buffalo scores, <laughs> and they immediately go for the two-point conversion, mm. and they missed it. If you miss the two-point conversion, it's still a three-possession game. If you make it, it's two. I, I can't understand. These coaches have literally like armed divisions of assistant coaches whose whole job is to like 
hold the water, Map hold the clipboard, clipboard, watch the replay. Like someone has to be there doing the math and understanding. There is no advantage if you need eight, eight, and seven. There's no advantage to getting eight first. But they went for it. They lost it. And maybe just as a fan, I felt then killed the momentum. If you saw the movie The Dark Knight Rises, there's a scene in it where Bruce Wayne has to jump out of this pit. And and no one's ever gotten out of it. There's this one jump nobody can make. And the first few times he tries it with a rope and he can't make it. And the whole drama is that finally in the end he, he doesn't use the rope. He takes away that mental crutch and he makes the jump. What a sad movie it would have been if he had tried immediately to have no rope and just fall into his death. That's basically what Buffalo did. There was no reason to what go for that. incredible, incredible analogy. Drove me nuts. <laughs> it drove me absolutely nuts. Um, Can I just say that the the, hap- the thing that made me the happiest about uh, on this you know NFL conference championship weekend was that uh, really the fact that Trump is no longer on Twitter and so could not <laughs> congratulate Tom Brady. You know, all of New England still loves Tom Brady, and the fact that it couldn't be ruined by Donald Trump saying something nice to him, uh, it really was. It was such a that was it made me happy in a way I can't even express. We will uh, that, devote that was, eventually an entire episode to the regional cognitive dissonance of New England <laughs> loving Tom Brady and hating Donald Trump. But before we get to that episode, we have our special guest here now, and I would like to introduce him and then get into our conversation with him. Um, today's guest is a professor of history at Claflin University in South Carolina. He is also the lead associate editor at the award-winning blog Black Perspectives and the book review editor for the Society of U.S. Intellectual Historians. We are very, very fortunate on this day to have Dr. Robert Green with us. Dr. Green, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me this evening. Excellent. Thanks so much yeah, for being thanks here. Yeah, for, thanks for coming. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about um, Hank Aaron. We'll talk about um, his life, his legacy, his career. Some of the – I'd like to get into some of the um, – kind of summarizing that seems to be going on about Aaron mm-hmm. after his death, some of which seems to be a gross oversimplification of what he endured and what he stood for. Um, but first, um, first, let's just talk about the player, because when I went back to his numbers, it's funny that the all-time home run leader, and I'm counting Hank Aaron because he played in the age of integration, which Babe Ruth didn't, and I don't think that he used performance-enhancing drugs, which I think Bonds did. So I'm, for me, it's Hank Aaron. He's not really, if you look at him, he's not a slugger in the classic sense of, you know, a guy who hit 250 and just put up big numbers. I, these are astonishing. I look, So I looked at Aaron. Aaron broke in at 20 years old. Through his age 37 season, so 18 years, he hit 300 13 of those years. Mm-hmm. The only years that he didn't, he basically hit between 280 and 298 all of those years. This is the all-time home run leader. He won two batting titles, including hitting 355 in 1959. In the postseason, he hit 362. As far as endurance, starting with his second season, he played 150 games or more 14 out of 16 years. The only two that he didn't. He played 145 and 147. You can just keep picking. It's it's all ridiculous. He led the league in runs three times, hits twice, doubles, home runs, and RBIs four times. He had more walks than strikeouts for his career. His career high in home runs came when he was 37 years old. And even then, he didn't win the title. He finished with 47, which was one behind Willie Stargell. He won three gold gloves, somehow only won one MVP when he was 23, when he was 39 years old, in less than 400 at-bats, he hit 301 with 40 home runs and 96 RBIs. And I think, again, speaking to how remarkable his the span that he played in was and his durability, Hank Aaron first played on teams that featured Warren Spahn, who was a Hall of Famer who broke into baseball uh, a few months after World War II ended. The last team Aaron played on, the Milwaukee Brewers, featured Robin Yount, who was a Hall of Famer who retired a few months after the American military involvement in Somalia. That's an incredible range of career and accomplishment. Um, Dr. Green, just as far as Hank Aaron, the player, what stands out to you or what um, what are your impressions when you think of, of Henry Aaron? It's funny that you mentioned with Henry Aaron just how consistent he was because 
One of my favorite projects to work on in high school was when I took AP statistics and my group had to do a project on statistics and how to use them. And we chose who was the greatest baseball home run hitter of all time. And it might sound obvious, but our criteria was who was the most consistent. And at the time, we did the project back in 2003, of course, Bonds was only a few years away from breaking the record and everything. Sosa had his seasons of hitting 60 plus home runs, albeit both of those accomplishments are tainted by being in the steroid era and such. But with Aaron, we were just stunned by how consistent he was. I mean, this this man was the prime example of an athlete just going to work every day and doing his job day in and day out. But I'm also glad you mentioned just how great he was in the postseason, because I think that gets overshadowed because he played most of his career in an era where you had to win the league pennant to get to the World Series. And so you don't have the gaudy postseason stats that we have today. I don't want to sound like an old man saying, well, these players with their division series and league championship (laughs) series. That's not what I mean to say. But at the same time, Aaron was a key cog on Milwaukee Braves teams in the mid-50s that were often fighting for World Series contention with the Dodgers, with the Giants, with the Cardinals. Mm -hmm. In fact, someone pointed out the day after Aaron passed away, that he actually hit the game-winning home run in 1957 that won the pennant for the Braves. It was a walk-off home run. And I think it's stories like that where you, you think about how great Aaron was. As an Atlanta Braves fan, as a lifelong Atlanta Braves fan, I just want to point out that Hank Aaron was probably the only clerk person who actually showed up in the 1969 <laughs> NLCS against the Mets, yes. where yes. he hit a home That's run true. every game. And the rest of the Braves were like, oh, we're in the postseason? Oh, that's, that's <laughs> interesting. But nonetheless, I think Aaron's consistency and the fact that you point out he only won one MVP. He's he's being consistent in an era with, with Willie Mays, with Roberto Clemente, just in the National League alone, starting out early on with Duke Snyder and so many others, then wrapping up his career with the Willie Stargos of the world coming up and everything. Just this past weekend, MLB Network showed the 1971 All-Star Game which was right. played in Detroit, and which is the all-star game that is memorable for two things. For Reggie Jackson's home run moonshot that almost left Tiger Stadium. But then mm-hmm. it was also the first all-star game where Hank Aaron had an extra base hit. And in this case, it was, a I think, a two-run home run that he hit. And so mm-hmm. you think about how Aaron was so consistent for so long. And then you think about the fact that he breaks Babe Root's record in 1974. And by that point, as I point out in my piece for Jacobin, he had been playing from essentially the beginning of the civil rights movement, as we knew it, to the eve of the Watergate scandal. And I think that's that's incredibly compelling to think about in an American historical context. But just as a baseball player, Aaron's greatness is something that I think even now talking about his passing, we've just taken for granted. You know, so I, I and I know we want to talk about his life as well and um, some of the the changes that were connected to his career. But just on this point of his consistency, I mean, you look at his numbers in 71, which you were talking about. He's 37 years old. He led the league in OPS and slugging percentage. He probably should have won the MVP. It looks like I think Joe Torre won it. But that's incredible in a, in the era before modern medicine and recovery, t- you know, nutrition and uh, all of the things that you think about uh, that players today benefit from. For someone to be so dominant into their late 30s, really unusual and, and uh, kind of a uh, uh, something, I mean, you're, you're talking about someone who as an athlete was bionic, I mean, you know, to be able to do that for, for two decades, right? Oh, very much so. I mean, it's, I mean, it's absolutely incredible that Aaron was so great for so long. And like you say, did it in an era before we had modern medicine and the like. It's also, I think, worth noting some of the quotes that came out after his death, where you have quotes from pitchers like Sandy Koufax and Bob Gibson, two of the most feared pitchers of their day, saying, Hank Aaron was one of the few guys that we were actually afraid of. And Mm -hmm. the fact that Aaron was, was a guy who was doing this, and you look at Aaron, how he played, how he hit, Aaron's greatness as a hitter wasn't because he was big and strong like Bonds, although he was certainly, you know, powerfully built. 
Yeah. It was because he had strong, very fast wrists. He mm-hmm. knew how to use the baseball bat as really a weapon in the best sense of the word. And it's that bat speed that made him such a great player. And not to mention the fact that he was also a wonderful outfielder as well. Again, he was a total package kind of player who played in an era filled with so many greats and so many legends. Yeah. I remember when I was in junior high school, we had an English class where our project was to write a letter to a celebrity. And uh, I wrote to Hank Aaron because I had been reading about him at the time. And I had just learned that he had hit with his his wrists backwards. Mm. And I played a lot of baseball as a kid. Like I I still was dumb enough to think I would make it. So when we read about Hank Aaron hitting this way, we all went out and, and decided to try to play this way. And like, I remember writing the, the letter to Hank Aaron that I was sure he would read and saying to him, like, how I was beyond astonished, not only at what, what he had done, but that he spent years. I believe he got to the, reached the level of, maybe he was with the Annapolis Clowns or the Negro Leagues. I don't know if he got that yes. far, but he, because there wasn't, there wasn't TV, there wasn't baseball clinics, there wasn't media. He, he had no idea even that his wrists were backwards. And there's a, there's a kind of Thelonious Monk, to me, quality to someone like that, where in a technical sense, they're doing something wrong. But they're so gifted and diligent about what they're doing that they, I think, I don't know if there's any, any methodology for this, but I wonder, you know, you hear that famous quote about trying to sneak a fastball past Hank Aaron was like trying to get the sunrise past a rooster. And I wonder... <laughs> Like, did he develop his wrists in some kind of unorthodox way that we'll never know again? Because he spent years doing it wrong. It didn't hurt him. Like, it really didn't work against him at all. No, I I think that's something to think about. That Aaron's greatness may very well have been because he learned how to play the game in a relatively unorthodox way. And I think contributing to that as well is the fact that growing up, he grew up incredibly poor. Um, so mm-hmm. he was forced to learn how to play baseball using anything he had around him, which when I was doing research into Aaron's life and into his early days in, in Alabama, in rural Alabama, what struck out to me was the fact that you have someone like Aaron in the 1930s and 40s who's growing up incredibly poor in a state of, of poverty that many of us today really cannot imagine. And it was just sheer raw not just talent, but a desire to play the game that he had. I mean, when he goes off to play baseball for the first time in his life, organized baseball, you know, he has very little money in his pocket. He's just taking clothes on his back, and that's about it. And yet no one could have imagined that he would grow up to be one of the greatest ball players of all time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just asking about his his life, and you you touch on this in your, your – um, your Jacobin piece about him uh, uh, that came out after his uh, his passing. So he grew up in the in uh, was it in Mobile, Alabama? Yes. In the you know so in the the Jim Crow South in the 1930s, and he it's uh, from from what I gather ends up in the Negro Leagues at the very end of the Negro Leagues. I mean, which are sort of they're they're falling apart because of the integration of Major League Baseball. Is that is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and I mean, the thing about the Negro Leagues collapsing is that it happened so fast because, you know, Jackie Robinson enters Major Leagues in 1947, and by 1953, the Negro Leagues are on their last legs. And was he a star at, at a very young age? I mean, did people kind of recognize that he was. Was he heavily scouted? Were Major League teams after him? Well, so he was not. A, a superstar at a young age, but he was someone that the scouts noticed. Um, he was someone who in the Negro Leagues and when he was briefly there and then in the minor leagues when he plays in the South Atlantic League, which is the, the league that's in the Deep South and the Carolinas, Georgia and elsewhere, people could tell that he was already really good. I mean, he was hitting above yeah. 300 from the get-go. And actually, to your point, there's a story that he almost signed with the Giants which would have meant he would have played with Willie Mays. And the story goes that the wow. only reason Aaron didn't sign with them was that the Braves franchise offered him more money as a signing mm-hmm. bonus. And I, I still think about what that would have looked like if you had Mays and Aaron in the same outfield or in the same team. But to your point, 
Aaron's one of those players who you could just see early on in his career, even before he hit the major leagues, that this was a guy who was something special. But I don't think anyone imagined quite how special he would be. And and what was it like? I mean, can you just describe for people a little bit? Wow. To be in the, the minor leagues, a black ball player in the minor leagues in the Deep South coming up in the, the 1950s, not probably an easy an easy time, uh, an easy situation to be in, right? Not at all. And, I mean, it's important to note that Aaron's one of the first black ball players in the South Atlantic League, or as, as it's called in the South, the Sally League. And, mm. you know, he was the first black player to go to some of these cities like Augusta, Columbia, elsewhere. Uh, to, to Jacksonville, that was, that was his home baseball team at the time, and to really play in some of these places. I mean, we talk about how Jackie Robinson faced adversity in the major leagues when he first entered. You take that and imagine combining that with the virulent racism of the South in the 50s, combined with the relative intimacy of minor league stadiums, and mm-hmm. you've got an incredibly toxic brew there. And yet Aaron... Again, Aaron was used to this growing up in the Jim Crow South. And so for him, it wasn't a surprise, but certainly for he and other black baseball players, it was not at all a fun experience. In fact, just a couple years ago, Aaron came back to Columbia, South Carolina for a first pitch for the minor league franchise here now. And one of the things that was talked about was how much racism he faced in Columbia in particular, just being one of several places that he played in his brief minor league career. But I think we, I don't really know if it's possible for us now to imagine what's, what that is like. Because, again, it's not only the racism he faces at the stadiums. It's also he can't stay with his team in hotels. He has to go get meals at a separate location. He might have to go stay with a black family in town uh, during road trips, things like that. It's the kind of racism and the impact it has on people, I think we can see it through how baseball players had to deal with it. Because if you imagine someone like a Henry Aaron having to deal with this in his playing career, then you could imagine what people all across the South, really all across the country, are dealing with at the same time in far worse conditions. That's a great point. Um, I hadn't known until I started um, reading up for this interview that we think of 1947, I think a lot of people think of it as okay, Jackie Robinson integrates baseball, hooray, like we've made it. And what I hadn't realized quite specifically was that Robinson integrated baseball mostly in the North um, Mm -hmm. and that there was an initial pattern of that happening, but it was still Aaron and some of his contemporaries who were faced with, as you're saying, the job of integrating in in a much more virulent, um, difficult region in the South. So speaking of the things that Aaron struggled with and dealt with, and and I was I was struck by this because one of the first interviews that I saw, and I can't remember now. I wish I oh I think it was on um, part of the interruption. I think it was Michael Wilbon mm-hmm. made a point about how with everything Aaron suffered, you know he was never bitter. He was never negative, and that's a maybe an appealing caricature of a human being. But when I went into some of what Aaron has said over the years and some of the realities he's dealt with. I just just a couple things that that really struck me. You know, he's teammates with Warren Spahn. Spahn at one point compares Aaron to a cockroach. Um, Spahn would tell like racist jokes about the Braves had a, a couple of black outfielders, and Spahn would tell kind of a, a, a series of jokes that he he had about that. Um, Hank Aaron, until through the rest of his life, says that when he was in public, he never finished a drink. Even if it was a glass of water, he would never finish a drink unless he was at home because he wasn't sure if it had been poisoned or not. And he had to live with that fear his whole life. He also, when he sits in a restaurant, he never sits with his back to the door because he doesn't know who might be coming in. And this was a person who got – and this is one of those weird American realities. He got an award or like a plaque from the post office for getting the most – letters to a civilian in a single year. In 74, I think, he got almost a million pieces of mail. But if you look at what a lot of that mail was, it was hate mail. It was death threats. It was... And and Aaron, for a number of interviews, years later, began sharing some of the things that people had written to him. When, during the the home run chase, the FBI was, was following his daughter 
in her school disguised as maintenance men because there were kidnapping threats against her, death threats against her. The thing that struck me the most, there's that very famous clip when Aaron reaches home plate after hitting the 715th off of Al Downing when you see his parents are right there and his mother hugs him. It seems like a very sweet moment. When I read about that too today, Aaron's sister, Alfredia, said that the mother wasn't out there because of happiness. She was running out there quote, because she thought her son was going to die. And she told me, quote, if they were going to kill my son, they were going to have to kill me too. And this clip is has become kind of canonized as like this great moment in, in sports and this great moment in racial history. And there's a mother in 1974, while Vin Scully is waxing poetic about a black man in the Deep South getting a standing ovation, she's covering him afraid for his life. His bodyguard is in the stands, not sure if he should pull out his 38 to shoot the two college students who got to Aaron when he rounds, and it's just whitewashed. So I'm curious, there's a, there's a lot more, but I, I'm just interested, Dr. Green, in how is this still whitewashed the way that it is? You don't have to go on the dark web to find this evidence. It's all right there. And yet, as soon as the man passes away, this this saccharine cartoon version of racial history that we've inflicted on Dr. King and inflicted on other people is now placed on Hank Aaron, who... It doesn't add up. Yeah, I, and I was going to say that, you know, of course, we're recording this a week and a half after MLK Day. And I mean, that's just a reminder of how some Americans are incredibly adept and comfortable with whitewashing African-American historical figures, whether they be athletes, activists, intellectuals, and so forth. The thing about Aaron that I think we have to remember is that he grew up during an era where many African-American men and women who were, whether public figures or just everyday people, knew they didn't really have much of a choice in how they reacted to, to outright racism. They, they had to show some sort of, of grace under pressure because society didn't give them a choice. If they were to vocalize their anger like Malcolm X, they'd be vilified, or later Martin Luther King Jr., they would be vilified. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it's actually quite telling that one of Aaron's heroes was Jackie Robinson. And I think most people think, well, of course he was because Robinson integrated the major leagues. But it's like it's not just that. It's that Robinson, like Aaron, had a similar trajectory. Robinson, like Aaron, could not show how angry he was. And yet Robinson, like Aaron, we have on the record from both men how they actually felt about what they faced. And they were not happy with it. They 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 were constantly under threat of being killed simply because they played the game of baseball and played it well. And I think with Aaron, especially the the problem with Aaron's legacy is that we talk about how graceful he was and how he faced everything with such humility and gentility. Let's just put aside all of the dog whistles right there in that statement. Just the Mm -hmm. fact that he's doing this in Atlanta in 1974 it gives people an opportunity to say, hey, the, the South is changing. The South is advancing. It's getting better. Never mind, this is not only six years after MLK's assassination, which was in Memphis, but I believe that's the same year Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother is also killed. Um, in another incident that's often whitewashed and glossed over, that she shot and killed in her own church. You have this during an era in the South's history where a lot of people in the South a lot of white Americans are still not really comfortable with the gains of the civil rights movement for African Americans and for other groups of people. And yet we use Aaron's hitting of home run 715 to say, well, everyone in the South lived happily ever after because they happened to be at a ball game and cheering for a black man. By the way, I think one of the best sources on this is, is actually in uh, Rick Perlstein's book, Invisible Bridge where he talks about briefly the home run chase and how in Atlanta, the game after this one, there's almost no one in the stands because mm-hmm. the city of Atlanta was saying, you've got to go support him or otherwise we'll look bad. They did. And then wow. everybody just kind of stopped going to games again. I, I'm going to flip it to Joan in a second, but just on that point, Dr. Green, you, you referenced earlier in 57, um, Aaron hit a home run against the Cardinals to win the pennant and his father has talked about that being his favorite of all Aaron's home runs. That was his dad's favorite. And one of the things that Aaron has mentioned about it, or I think it was Aaron, it might have been his dad, but I think it was Hank Aaron. That home run, so Aaron hits the home run. The paper that day in 
Milwaukee has a headline that's somewhere along the line of like crowd mobs Negro, but like it's it's meant to be a positive, like mm-hmm. everyone's. And it was the exact. It was juxtaposed at the same day, I believe, when um, the police in Little Rock are having to protect the girls going up into school. It's just to your point, I know Jonah has a question, but I'm just I'm struck by what you're saying, and again. I had never thought about that, and I hadn't known that the the stadium was cleared out the next day. But it is interesting because I had read in the games leading up to that, they have no fans. In the game right after it, they have no fans. But but to send that message, you know, they'll dress up anything. Um, Jonah, go ahead. Well, you know, so I'm very interested in um, Hank Aaron's own politics and his uh, relationship to civil rights activism. Uh, it's interesting to me that you bring up Jackie Robinson, obviously a heroic figure, a, a central figure in the history of civil rights. Also, for a long time, relatively conservative politically, he was a Republican, and I think he, you know, had supported uh, Nixon in 1960, and then had a complicated relationship. Uh, and there is a, a way in which, on the one hand. I would say people on the left can ignore some of the complications of the politics of that era. Also, I, you know, and I, just on what you were talking, you guys were talking about some of the, the dog whistles, and I have no idea of his politics. But I saw a, a tweet from Chipper Jones, a more recent Braves legend, clearly had a relationship with Hank Aaron, you know, which I have no reason to doubt at all. But he wrote on Twitter, I can't imagine what Hank Aaron went through in his lifetime. He had every right to be angry or militant, but never was. He spread his grace on everything and everyone he came in contact with, epitome of class and integrity. You know, so on the one hand, there can be a a, a way in which people hold up these figures, these civil rights icons, as if they had no politics or ideas of their own. People on the left. And on the other hand, there is this tendency. Uh, I mean, as you described it, it uh, this real dog whistling around uh, not not angry, not a militant, you know, someone who had integrity and class, which feels very old school to me. Right. You know. Yeah. You know, I, I did. First off, I did see that tweet from Chipper Jones. And I remember thinking to myself, Larry, what are you doing? But <laughs> um, but. On a more serious note, I think what you're seeing here is that there is this assumption that militancy has to look a certain way and sound a certain way. Aaron, publicly, of course, he was a quiet, reserved man. Everybody says he carried himself well. But if you look at his private life in terms of how he supported HBCUs, how he supported black organizations, just this week, I found out that uh, from Randall Jokes, a a professor uh, at Kansas, that Actually, um, Aaron was a lifetime member of the Association for Study of African American Life and History. Like he, he mm. paid a membership, like a lifetime membership for that organization. And so I think the thing with Aaron is that he wasn't outspoken the way, say, Muhammad Ali was in the sixties. Um, he wasn't that kind of militant, but I think he comes from a generation of African Americans who who thought, well, how can I best serve my race? How can I best be what they would have called back in the 50s, a race man? And one way to do that would have been to be someone who quietly supported causes, who publicly championed civil rights and the like. Going back to the Jackie Robinson example for a second, his politics, I think, are a reminder of a different era in the sense that, yes, he was a Republican. He supported Nixon in 1960. But he was also someone who, when the Republican Party makes its right return in 64, is clearly outspoken about where the party's going. He even has this quote, and this is Robinson in 64, saying, I felt like a Jew in Hitler's Germany about being at the convention that year for the GOP. So I I think Robinson and Aaron and other African-American men and women of that generation, they, they thought about what their options were in terms of being involved in the community. And they thought, well, what is the most productive way for me to do this? And Aaron himself even said a few years ago that he wished he had taught the Martin Luther King Jr. more. I mean, they were both in Atlanta at the same time, but the way their schedules were and the fact that both men were a little busy in the late 60s meant that they only taught a few times. But King and Aaron being of the same generation... Mm. I think also speaks to how African-Americans felt they had to take a number of different political paths 
to try to find some haphazard way towards freedom. I want to um, read a quote that Aaron gave about him and his place in history. I feel like there's been a lot of talk and conjecture from other people about about Hank Aaron's significance and Hank Aaron's impact on history. And I want to just leave you with something that Aaron himself said. And I, th- I think of this especially in light of watching how after the Black Lives Matter movements of last summer, how quickly corporate sports was able to kind of get in on it and make it a t-shirt and branding kind of issue without actually really taking any, any significant action with it. And Aaron said this, he said, quote, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Roberto Clemente, Ernie Banks, Lou Brock, Frank Robinson, Bob Gibson. We came along and saved what would have become the dullest game in history. We brought excitement, speed. We paid our dues, man. No one knows what we had to go through. Get off the bus, go get dressed somewhere else, go eat on the other side of town, get back in half an hour ready to play. What has baseball done for us? How many of those guys are around the game today? The white man allowed us a few crumbs. You can sit right here in front of the bus as long as you're pulling in money. After that, it's back to the back of the bus. I think that speaks to Aaron's time, and I still think it speaks to what's happening now. Um, yeah, you know, I think the thing about Aaron's place in history that's that's also worth thinking about is the position of the black baseball player and how mm-hmm. in, in recent years there's been a lot of talk and discussion of uh, a noticeable decline in number of black Major League Baseball players, at least from the United States. Yep. And yes. I think the best way that you can see this in, in terms of how it plays out over time is that Ebony Magazine every year used to run a feature, I think every April or May issue, where they'd show pictures of all the black Major League Baseball players. And I remember as a kid, I looked through Ebony and I see this this section that was every black player's portrait from every Major League team. There was a point in the 2000s where they stopped doing that because they had too few players to justify making a separate section. Wow. I think what we're talking about with Aaron is not just a reflection of Aaron as a man or even Aaron as a symbol, but also a reflection on black baseball players and what they meant. You know, and I think what you saw over the last few months with the deaths of so many baseball greats is that so many baseball greats that we've lost over the last few months, including, of course, most notably Henry Aaron, were men who played baseball and Tom Lasorda being a manager during the era. They were all part of baseball when baseball still really mattered in American society. When baseball was still, albeit it was battling with the NFL for being the national pastime, it was still a sport that mattered. People still cared about who who was the MVP, who was the home run leader. People still, you know, cared about who got to the World Series and who won the pennant in a way that I don't think is really the case anymore. And so Aaron represents a moment in American history that is both one that we should not mythologize, which we've already done with Aaron, with MLK, with others. But it's also an era that we should look back on and think, how did people like Aaron survive and thrive despite everything thrown against them? And I will just end on this. As a, a Black man from Georgia, I cannot help but note that we've lost in the last few months, not just Henry Aaron, but John Lewis as well. And mm-hmm. It feels like the end of an era in terms of the history of Black Americans, the history of Black Georgians, that we've lost such titanic figures in our national history. And I just want the listeners to know that we've got to do everything we can to make sure that they are not just simply mythologized and turned into, you know, teddy bears for historical purposes, but that we understand that Aaron and Lewis and so many other Black men and women who lived and died in the American South were complicated figures who did the best they could in situations that tried to destroy them. Beautifully said. Jonah, any more questions that you have? No, I that really captured something. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Green, thank you so much for your time and all of your insights. And you, um, and you people really should go read to, your, the uh, piece in Jacobin on, uh, on Henry Aaron. Thank you so much for your time and for everything. It was really, really cool. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll have you on again in the future. This was really, really great. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
Good. Cool. Thanks, man. Take care of yourself. So, you know, before we wrap, I think we have to talk about the one-year anniversary of Kobe Bryant's death, the big news in the NBA. And, you know, I worried that this show is just going to turn into an NBA show. And then I say, hey, you know, what what do we care about? What what do people, you know, who read Jacobin care about? It's the NBA, first and foremost. Got to give the people what they want. You got to get – isn't that – that's the – you know, the Jalen Rose, got to yes. give the people what they want. Yeah. Jalen and Jacoby. Right, right, right. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, it was obviously a moment in American culture and society that went well beyond the NBA. Just this shocking moment. And do you have any thoughts a, a year later? I mean, what a year it's been. It feels like it was a lifetime ago. But, you know. Yeah, it does. I was at an ice skating rink for a party that we had bought our house two months beforehand and our realtor was having some kind of a party and our daughter wanted to go ice skating. So we we walk into this ice skating rink and the realtor comes kind of rushing up to me and she's not a big sports fan. And she's like, did you hear what happened? And I'm like, no. And she's like, Kobe. And I have no idea what she's talking about. And then right as she's telling me about it, my phone starts to blow up. Um, I'm usually not struck by athlete or celebrity deaths. Um, Maybe I'm too young and and the people who mean the most to me haven't passed yet. But the Kobe thing threw me for a lot of reasons. He was was born like two months before I was. And he was one of those athletes that I decided when I was young that I would – I'd follow him from my life because he was a peer and, you know, he was just this person that was of your generation and of your time and – I'm still kind of where I have been for most of the year, which is there's a very sad, larger human narrative that like I, I don't even like to think about sometimes because I just think it's it's too sad to imagine. Also, I, though, to be honest, um, and I, I say this probably biased um, because I'm someone who survived um, – sexual violence as a child and as an adult, I'm always struck when the Kobe testimonials come in. And I was struck by it that day also at what that day must have been like for the young woman from Colorado who he, I'm pretty sure he settled out of court with and gave a statement acknowledging that when he thought about what she has said, like he, he, he saw why she felt that it was sexual assault. Um, And I think about all the other survivors of sexual assault that day. And it's very complicated because nobody's just one thing. And Kobe Bryant's not just one thing. And he means so many things to so many people, even to me, even as someone who hates the Lakers and always roots against them. And there's the human element. There's him as a father. There's him as a player. There's him as a black man. There's him as, a non-Native American because he grew up in Italy. There's, there's all the sides of him, but I am always struck when the testimonials pour in about, and we kind of touched on this just now with Dr. Green in regards to Hank Aaron. I don't see that story brought up. And I understand that like, you know, if you're honoring Kobe, you wouldn't bring up that story, but there's something to me that just always, it's like a snag. It always stands out to me that like, you can't have this conversation and not, I think, acknowledge that somewhere, but maybe it's just me. A lot of people are very, I guess the only fair thing to say is that he means different things to everybody. But for me, um, he's one of the more complicated celebrities in my lifetime sure. because it's difficult to separate the his personality, which was one issue, and his game, which was entirely another issue, and is off the court stuff, which was entirely another issue. You're a Celtic fan, so I'm hoping that your hatred might be just undiluted and pure. Right. But how did you feel when you heard about it? How do you feel about it now? Well, you know, I, I think um, you know? You're, 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 I mean, you're totally right that that has been sidelined, that story, and the accusation of, of sexual assault. Um, and he certainly is a complicated figure. I, I think it's clear. That, uh, you know, and this is the flip side, he had a, um, 
you know, he had an impact that went well beyond the Lakers, right? I mean, we rooted against him for so many years in so many different contexts. But if you look at uh, just the the young NBA players and the way people responded to his passing, and of course, I mean, that his death was more than just his death, right? I mean, it was his daughter, and there were right. seven other people on that helicopter. and um, But mm-hmm. it's clear yeah. that he... That people had a, a relationship to him and, you know, looked at him, uh, looked up to him in a way that I don't think has been true of anyone else in the last in, – in recent decades. I mean there are other people who have clearly had an enormous impact on young NBA players. Obviously LeBron in a different way, maybe Allen Iverson, Michael Jordan obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know – People really, uh, they really admired him. And, you know, that, that says something yeah, about... he's revered. Revered. He, he really is revered around the NBA. And he was, mm-hmm. you know, before his death. And, um, you know, a lot of people have stories about him. I, you know, you, he had a reputation when he was alive as this cutthroat player. Vicious to teammates who couldn't hang. Vicious to opponents. Um, yes. There are a lot of stories about him... You know, being very generous with other players, younger players, helping people. And as he got older, you know, kind of the mm-hmm. edge came off maybe a little bit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, all everyone is complicated, right? You know, and someone's death mm-hmm. means more than just mm-hmm. one thing. That certainly is something that stood out mm-hmm. to me, how, how much of an impact he had on people. Yeah. I mean, Iverson's... Jordan, I think, to a lot of guys to now is almost like a ghost, um, right. you know, or like a, a god that you worship because your family does, but not because you really get it. And Iverson was, you know, culturally um, significant in so many ways. But just as a straight up, when you listen to players talk about the crap, like players talk about him with the kind of admiration and almost incredulity that we would talk about players having. Like he was on that kind of a level. Um, not just in terms of his performance and his execution, but in terms of his work ethic, in terms of every aspect of his game, his footwork, his drive. You, you see it all the time, even from people who are not in sports. The the absorption of this so-called Mamba mentality <laughs> seems to have been the thing more than anything that stands out about Bryant in all in all kinds of fields, to all kinds of people. What a nickname. Which I think is impressive because for for a guy who – and this is something I always admired about him, even though he got crap for it. He clearly emulated Michael Jordan to a, a stalker, like single white female sort of <laughs> extent. And yet he was he was able to do it well enough that he was as close an approximation as you can get in terms of success, in terms of style, and in terms of game. But also something else about him connected with the public. I think in a way that it didn't it didn't quite work the same with Jordan. Like Jordan had to have a documentary come out 20 years after he retired that he had full editorial control over to be willing to give the public a glimpse into his maniacal nature. Yeah. Kobe didn't hide it. Now, I think Kobe went back and forth a lot in his career depending on what his public image was. Before the rape trial, he was the smiling like boy next door, you know, charming and then after that just seemed to decide, all right, screw it. Like, I'll, you want the bad guy? Like, I'll be the bad guy. But I do find it impressive that he was comfortable enough, unlike Michael Jordan, to let the world see, like, I'm that petty. I'm that driven. I'm that, you know, monomaniacal. And I don't, I don't apologize for it. Now, that's, that, I, I can respect that. Remind me, he gave himself the Black Mamba nickname, right? He did. Yes, I, that did. is something I respect. You know, I, I totally <laughs> choose your own nickname, you know, and just run with it. Ch- I am totally, totally. He chose it well. He chose it very well. And 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 we should point out, gave rise to a whole Mamba industry, including the Red Mamba, who is, depending on where you're from, either Matt Bonner or Brian Scalabrini. Brian Scalabrini, um, sure. So it's yeah. a great Brian Scalabrini. With, I thought he was White Mamba, which is a... I think it depends on the time of year and how much of a tan he has going on. Um, Yeah, maybe it's Matt Bonner and maybe Scabs is just straight up white mamba. But yeah, again, like you, you, if you give yourself that name, you better be a bad man. And he was. He was a bad man. On the the floor, he was a bad man. 
He really was. All right. Um, I think that will be the end of the third episode of the Jacobin Sports Show. I want to thank, again, our guest, Dr. Robert Green II, and Jonah Birch, as always. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Matt. Till next time. Yeah. We will see you. Yeah, we'll see you all in a week. We will, um, if you check the Twitter site, at Jacobin Sports, we will update you um, as soon as we have our guests ready to announce for next week. But we will have someone set up. We will see you and talk to you then. And again, if you want to email with any thoughts or questions or suggestions, you can email us at jacobinsports at gmail.com. None of this is possible without the benevolent production skills of Connor Gillies. So thank you, Connor. And that's all for now. Enjoy the end of January 2021. And we will see you all in about a week. <laughs>